Jesse, how's it going? I am feeling crestfallen, Katie. Why is that? I have a confession to make. It's pretty heavy. Oh, shit. All right. Give it to me. All right. This could, you know, a lot of things have almost torpedoed the podcast. I think this will torpedo the podcast. You know how I make um, a lot of jokes about being awkward and Jewish, fake girlfriends, just that whole sort of nerd shtick? Yeah. Yeah. It's your thing. It's all a lie. What? 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 This is, this is an identity I've been building up um, ever since I sort of started having some success in journalism maybe six or seven years ago. I built up this this sort of persona, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes now, Jesse Single. Uh, that's not who I am. Are you really a Chad? My full name is Chad Chadwick III. <laughs> this is not funny to me. This is I'm burying my heart out, and you find it funny. Well, okay. We will certainly investigate these claims. I might require a DNA test from you. Have you done your 23andMe lately? That's next on the list. Can I can I tell you a little bit about my real self? Yeah, please do. Chad Chadwick is a meaning I am a chiseled surfer from uh, Bay Area, California. Long blonde hair. My body fat percentage is too low. I have too much muscles, the doctor said. Um, what about uh, what about the cargo shorts in their closet? Are those a lie too? Those are a lie. I've never worn cargo shorts. Only <sighs> I mean, do you wear fucking speedos? Yeah, I walk around in a speedo on the beach with a wetsuit. Uh, I'm really good at surfing. Women love me. I don't have any Jewish relatives. I've, I don't know what a synagogue is. Oh my god! Know. Do you have your foreskin? Yeah, of course. It's huge. <laughs> All right, Jesse. Well, the investigation will continue into this, but I have to say thank you for your confession. I know that must have been difficult for you. I know in context this hurt a lot of people, but I just felt like breaking into journalism, you know, journalism is dominated by Chad Chadwick types and there aren't sort of any neurotic, anxious Jewish people. So I thought by cultivating that identity and moving to Brooklyn, I could somehow somehow carve myself a place and now it's all falling apart. And it worked for you until now. To an extent, yes, but uh, I hope I hope listeners who uh, came to love, I'll say with a question mark, Jesse Single, and come to at least tolerate Chad Chadwick the Third. All right, Chad, thank you for your confession. And uh, what podcasts are we listening to? I'm Chad Chadwick the Third, and this is Blocked and Reported. And I'm Katie Single. I mean- <laughs> a lot of identity confusion this week. Yes. And I'm Katie Herzog. Um, and today we are going to be speaking about this type of identity fraud, the, the type of identity fraud that you have. <laughs> Wait, what? You're saying that the intro segues right into what we're talking about? Strangely, it does. Um, so today we are going to be talking about the case of Jessica Krug. Do you want to give the background on that, Jesse? I mean, Chad? <laughs> yes, I should say we're also going to be answering an email from a reader who's thinking for voting for Trump at the end of the show. But uh Jessica Krug is a, this is straight from her webpage, a historian of politics, ideas, and cultural practices in Africa and the African diaspora with a particular interest in West Central Africa and maroon societies, blah, 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 blah. She, um, she wrote a book called Fugitive Modernities, Politics and Identity Outside the State in Kisama, Angola, and the Americas. Very well regarded. If you look at her photo, uh... You know, she's ethnically ambiguous, and she was uh, – this basically turned out to be a Rachel Dolezal situation or, uh, as I call it, a racial Dolezal situation. <laughs> yeah, we should mention she is a professor currently, an associate professor at George Washington University. She also goes by the name – I believe it's Jessica La Bombera or something like that. Did you catch that? S- sounds real to me. <laughs> no, there's a there's amazing video or audio we'll drop here. Um, she basically gave – like. Uh, some sort of I don't know testimony talk remotely from a New York uh, to a New York City Council meeting. We'll drop that here. As you can tell, she she sounds like someone with um, she's trying to sound like someone with a Puerto Rican accent. People who are better. It's than a I bad Puerto Rican accent. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's like uh, it's not great. Um, but you can see that language is very sort of. Um, you know, white gentrifiers, blah, blah, blah. I'm Jessa Bombalera. I'm here in El Barrio, East Harlem. Uh, you probably know this neighborhood because the Hosanna Melissa Mark Viverito, who used to be the speaker of your city council, sold my fucking neighborhood to developers and gentrifiers. So on September 3rd, we're recording this for uh, Friday, September 4th, a post by someone who appears to be Jessica A. Krug, that's the name on there, was published on Medium called The Truth and the Anti-Black Violence of My Lies. You know, this is one of those ones where you can get a um, – I'll just, I'll just read this one little bit. It sort of sums it up. To an escalating degree over my adult life, I have eschewed my lived experience as a white Jewish child in suburban Kansas City under various assumed identities within a blackness that I had no right to claim. 
first North African blackness, then U.S. rooted blackness, then Caribbean rooted Bronx blackness. Um, I guess meeting sort of the New York, Puerto Rican, New York thing. Um, so she basically goes out to explain that as a result of childhood trauma, she she adopted this false racial identity. She pins it on the trauma, says that that's no excuse. It's sort of a very tortured medium post, even by the standard of medium posts. And uh, she just basically at the end says that, like, people should cancel me. So it's just a – I mean everyone in the community was shocked apparently. Like I guess – so so the rumor circulating is that she posted this because she had to because someone was closing in on her. And then of course when something like that – this happens, everyone pops up on Twitter with – bad experiences they've had with her and suspicions they had, but it just, it appears she was able to, uh, LARP as a person of color, right down to a stereotypical accent for years and years while operating openly within academia and being a respected academic. Right. In the medium post, she also says that she has unaddressed mental health demons and she doesn't quite excuse her behavior or, uh, on her unaddressed mental health demons or her childhood trauma, but she does use it as a way to try to explain her her behavior. Um, I would like to say, for the record, anything that I do is also because of my unaddressed mental health demons. Oh, I mean, we're podcasters. That goes without saying for yeah. all of us. Yeah, for sure. Either that or our astrological signs. Um, <laughs> so with everything going on in the world yesterday, this still, <laughs> despite the fact that like global pandemic, record unemployment, political unrest, this story, as was totally inevitable took over Twitter yesterday, or at least the, the portion of Twitter that that I exist on. And it was very reminiscent of Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, yeah. Rachel Dolezal was the uh, well, local NAACP chapter head who did the same thing. She just sort of uh, posed as black for years and years and then became an object of, of understandable derision and hatred when it was revealed that she was, uh, that she was not black. So, yeah, this is sort of... Um, this is an even more Dolezal, Dolezal situation, I think, just because of like of her academic work and how that sort of helps situate her. Um, it's just it's a completely crazy story. So a lot of people after this came out, I think, argued possibly wrongly that this was that she did this to sort of get ahead in her field. And that might be true. But if she has been doing this since childhood or since she was a young adult, as she claims, then that argument seems less compelling to me. Um, because if you were, you know, pretending to be black since you were, she's got to be what in her 40s. I don't think that that would have come with sort of the, um, the, privileges that, that that being a minority have in academia today does that make sense is that a terribly problematic thing to say no i mean look i i think it could be both where there's clearly something wrong with this woman and i you know people really want some sort of identity and and they will do crazy things for that they will i'm not excusing this but like People will travel to Syria to join ISIS for identity. They will, mm -hmm. you know, kill people for identity. It's just for, for a lot of people, having some sense of identity is very important. She built a very strong sense of identity rooted in genuine historical trauma. I'm sure that like everyone else in academia and the left in 2020, she, she weaponized her identity and I saw some, you know, people sort of told some stories about that. Um, I don't think this is like, you know, she was like sitting in a calculator. Went, well, times are woke, so I better, you know, black myself up. I, I think it's more complicated and rooted in her being a broken person than that. And she just say it. She said she wasn't living a double life. There was no parallel form of my adulthood connected to white people or a white community or an alternative white identity. So she was full in on this lie. Yeah, and it's um, I mean. I don't want to backtrack too much, but you, I mean, you can't deny the fact that, like, this is the way people talk about identity these days. This obviously would have given her certain advantages in certain communities. It's just right. the, um, the, the depth of the lie is so overwhelming. It's such a weird story that I just, I, I, I want to hear her whole story of how this started. Although I guess she's not exactly a reliable narrator on any of this, but it would be right. fascinating. You know, she was a, a professor at a very well-regarded university. How does this happen? Right. And that's one of the 
pro or one of the things people seem to be bad about is this idea that she will be able to parlay this into um, some sort of success or media attention or whatever. As far as I know, she hasn't spoken to the media. Um, she just she and she's not on Twitter. I think she was on Instagram, but she she wrote this and then and then no further statements. Um, at least as, at least as far as I've seen. I, yeah, I do think. So I already saw people just like spreading every it's like some random person will pop up and then someone will be like, I had a negative encounter with her five years ago and people instantly retweet that there's no vetting right now. It's just like the peak moment of the pylon. But, um, you know, I did see some suggestions that she had taken advantage of academic resources specifically set aside for people from certain backgrounds, which that, you know, that's a really serious fucked up thing to do. Um, but yeah. Right. And she had also, I saw some uh, screenshots and I have to say like, none of this has been verified. This is all stuff that's floating around Twitter. Um, but I saw some screenshots between a Facebook conversation that she allegedly had with someone else in this, in this person was basically saying, um, you not, not saying like you're white, but saying like, you, will you recognize that you are white passing? And she didn't recognize that she was white passing. Although if you look at her, she is white. She's about, I mean, she's about as convincing, I think, a person of color as Adele is. Um, she, like, <laughs> I think Rachel Dolezal maybe did a better job of, um, of, 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 of her blackface. Um, and, and so, it, but she, in, in that statement, she said like, or in that, within the, that conversation, she said, you know, basically said that her mother was raped by a by a white man she told this person that she had right that she had a, a black or non-white mother who was raped by a white guy right right so here's the question how bad is this <laughs> i think it's great she is subverting <laughs> concepts of identity chad chad chadwick the third would think it's great i mean it's um it's incredibly fucked up it's just like it's you know someone could do something equally fucked up that didn't involve identity and it wouldn't be a, a – it's horrible, especially if she stole resources that were supposed to be sort of earmarked for someone from from a, a different racial background. I, I mean I find it bizarre. I will say that any – I just think the way progressives talk about identity now is so fucked up that like there's a little bit element of like – I don't know if schadenfreude is the right word, but like you see the way like professional academics and journalists will fully resolve arguments or decide who's right solely on the basis of skin color. Like this is a thing that happens a lot, right? Oh, yes. So so I like some little part of me is like, yep, all this, all this stuff is in a certain to a certain extent bullshit. It's not fully bullshit. And obviously, like, you know, being it's not fully bullshit. Obviously, if you have a grandmother who underwent certain traumas that does impact you in some way but just this totalizing view that everyone can be put on a hierarchy from most to least oppressed and that should flavor our every interaction in the world part of me while acknowledging how evil this is although evil tinged by mental illness i think this is a very disturbed person and there's this like catchphrase that like mental illness doesn't excuse stuff I think mental illness totally excuses stuff. I mean, what that's isn't that what mental illness is? It literally affects your brain's ability to look at the world the way other people. I how does it? I've never heard someone explain how mental illness shouldn't excuse certain bad acts. No, I think you're right about that. And in fact, legally, mental illness does uh, does excuse you from bad acts. You know, there. So you're saying yeah. she's not black by reason of insanity? <laughs> yes, <Sanity>. yes. <laughs> or she is black by reason of insanity. Um, but the question is like. You also see, like in the Sciencing By story that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Beth Ann McLaughlin, this woman who constructed a fake um, Native American bisexual anthropology professor and then killed her off, gave her a nasty case of COVID. Um, you know, she blamed mental illness. And so I do think that mental illness, while I also believe that it actually is a, is a compelling excuse for lots of behavior, you know, we talked to Freddie Dubois as well, who is diagnosed bipolar, um, which does like he talked about how mental illness influenced his actual behavior. I do think it's an excuse. That said, I also think a lot of people blame bad behavior for mental illness when there's no sort of diagnosis. Like, I think it can be a convenient sort of catch-all um, yes, yeah. to explain your own behavior. Well, and there's also, like, the question of agency is difficult here because, like, if she's been pulling this scam for years and is clearly an adult capable of reasoning – Eventually, maybe it's because she was backed into a corner. She was able of at least mouthing the words, I did something wrong. I'm so sorry. So, you know, I, I, I'm not meaning to say there's like a simple line here where people without mental illness are fully responsible for their actions and people with it aren't. I don't think I'm not like a big 
we have that much free will guy, not to get philosophical. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we'll see what the university does. It clearly, if she took resources designed for people who aren't her, you would think that's the kind of thing that could get her fired, whatever tenure protections or whatever else she has. Right. I think that's complicated. So uh, so I was thinking about this this morning. So George Washington University, where she works, is a private school. But let's say hypothetically that she taught at Washington State University or something like that at a, at a public school. Um, would that be would lying about your identity be protected? Well, it wouldn't be. It would be if you lied about your identity to get a certain resource that I think that goes well beyond First Amendment concerns. Sure, sure. I think that's true. Um, it's definitely free. I think it's free speech unless there's some like criminal fraud element. Yeah. Right, right. We'd have to know if there is some criminal fraud element, um, which uh, I'm sure more reporting will, will be done on this story. And, and you know, the answer might might uh, emerge be- like before we uh, finish recording this podcast. I, get, I feel like a bad person that some little part of me is like, well, Yep, that this is what's this is what's going to happen. I mean, there's no shortage of these stories sciencing by. I'm pretty convinced that like what percentage of the people who are synonymous online who claim some identity, you and I are both aware of situations where people do seem to adopt marginalized identity characteristics where you're like i don't know if this is true at all it's just yes. it's such a hard thing to actually ask somebody there, yes that's true especially online with anonymous you know avatars or anonymous accounts or whatever but you see that like if i were this woman and i wanted to construct a false identity for whatever reason to, to like just say hypothetically to like get ahead to get some sort of um social clout i really i would have gone with non-binary because you don't have to change anything um except for your pronouns maybe your name but you don't actually have to change your body or your appearance or anything like that and you can still get this sort of the the minority clout well did you see there was this uh, blow up in young adult fiction where this woman. Oh, surprise, surprise. A blow up in young adult fiction. I know. It's, we're going to have to do a whole episode on this at some point, but, um, I'll include a link to the show note. But the short version is this woman did this sort of overwrought blog post about how she'd gotten so much flack because she'd written stories about, uh, with queer characters. And people were always like, how could you do that? You're a straight woman, you know, appropriation blog. Like, this is what happens in this corner of fiction. If you write anything, as, you know, a white person, a straight person. If you write fiction, basically. Yeah, right, basically. Um, so she does this overwrought blog post where she's like, you know, it's just, I just felt so tired of having to answer questions about my sexuality. And you read it, you're like, yes, she's going to point out that this is fucking stupid. Anyone should be able to write anything. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her books have done well. People like them. They resonate. But then instead, she pivots to say she's coming out as queer. Which, as you know, in 2020, queer doesn't mean anything, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all that means is that, like, you know, you you like your socks to be different colors or whatever. You know, and um, what's the actress's name? Jamal Jamil. Um, do you remember that story? Jamila Jamil. Oh, oh, yeah. What was that one? Okay, so this is a British actress, and she um, she's in The Good Place, and she's been in a few other things. And she was uh, she got a job as a judge on a show um, based on um, ballroom culture, like voguing. And there was a huge stink about oh, this yeah. because she is presumably a straight woman. And so she used the opportunity to come out as queer. She didn't say what that means, but she came out as <laughs> queer as what is, I mean, if I'm going to be cynical about it, I mean, maybe she like thinks women are pretty or whatever. Maybe she kissed a girl in college. But, you know, if you're going to be cynical about it, it just seems like, you know, weaponizing identity, basically. Yeah. I see. I, I could never get away even with queer just because of the cargo shorts. Yeah. That just really does yeah. limit your options identity-wise. Tim Dillon is the only gay man allowed to wear cargo shorts. Oh, does he pull that off? Uh, you know, I've only seen him in a polo shirt. I don't think I've seen him from the waist up, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, is going to develop. Obviously, like she's not – this woman's not going to be able like, – I don't think she wants – I don't know who she is. I don't think she wants like a book deal because she understands like any publisher – would immediately get reamed. I don't think she's actually be able to make money off this. I think either she was backed into a corner or it was really starting to psychologically torture her or both. But like in either case, um, I'm guessing she does not have a bright career as an academic. Yeah, I last night I, I rewatched the Rachel Dolezal documentary, The Rachel Divide. Have you seen that? I haven't actually. I think I read uh, an article about it, maybe in The Stranger actually. It's quite good. It's, uh, you know, problematic. A lot of people were mad that it was made because it's centering the white woman um, who posed as black. Um, but I think it's, it's really quite good. And, and really the interesting thing, there's a couple interesting things about that documentary. For one, 
the big reveal is that the reason Rachel Dolezal was outed as white is because her she comes from she came from what she alleges was a very abusive family, this sort of um, like weird Christian cultish family, um, very uh, had her par- like very strict gender roles. Her parents adopted four black children when she was a teenager. And her brother, her biological brother, was accused by one of the by a girl that her parents adopted, her sister, um, of rape. And she was pressing charges as an adult. And her parents and her brother outed her to get to basically Rachel was gonna was going to to be a witness um, in this you know in this this suit or this trial whatever whatever it came down to. I think ultimately the charges were dropped after Rachel was outed. But the reason they outed her was to protect was to to discredit her. Um, and it totally worked. And the documentary is, it's sad. Um, you know, she, like Rachel Dolezal did some real fucked up things, not only pretending to be someone she wasn't, but also she's, this isn't definitive, but it, it seems as though she, she created a bunch of fake hate crimes targeting herself as the, the leader of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington. Oh, um, and so that's really, that's why people really started digging into her story um, was her parents outing her. And also she was like getting like, at one point they, they interview a black woman in Spokane and Spokane does have a long history of, of racism. I just, I heard on, on NPR this morning um there's a there were these guys who who like bombed like a Planned Parenthood and a and like the like a newspaper office in the 90s and they were just resentenced actually recently so this is sort of back in the news but Spokane does have a history of extre- of extremism um, and this black woman they interviewed said like why is Rachel Dolezal getting like dozens more hate crimes than anybody else in this in this town it just didn't make any sense um but it's still it's and of course there's the effect there of like turns out these hate these uh, these hate crimes were a hoax well what do you know people aren't going to take actual hate crimes seriously which is really fucked up um but she also she's a mom and she has she has black sons and that's who really that's who you end up feeling really sorry for in this film is her kids who are just like so bright and like her her kids come across as as really as quite interesting and, and, and smart people. And you know, and they and they have to they have to pay for this 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 hoax that she that she perpetrated. The the other interesting reveal of that film is that she's an artist and she's she's really quite a good artist. So I was watching this with uh with my wife yesterday and my wife was on my computer doing something and um and all of a sudden I get a little notification on my phone that my my credit card has been charged and uh and it <laughs> And it says, you have sent $55 to Rachel Dolezal. And it turns out that my wife was, was like sitting beside me purchasing her art. So um, <laughs> so she's canceled now. Um, but I also now have an original Rachel Dolezal uh, print coming to my house. Oh, my God. Do you know what it's a print of? I do. It's a. It's actually very cool. It's a collage that it's a print of a collage that's sort of a like Last Supper scene. Um, that's sort of trippy and and like I don't know, kind of weird. Um, I will I will post photos of it when it arrives. So you're an official financial supporter of Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, basically, basically. But 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 I did. You know, after watching this film, I did feel sorry for her because her ability to make a living. She doesn't have an ability to make a living. Like what she does now, she still does hair. She does black women's hair. Um, and I, I was texting with uh, Mitchell Sunderland last night, who is a former reporter for Vice, and he did this this like very long profile of Rachel in, in 2015, I believe, maybe 2017. And um, and and he told me that she he's still in touch with her. And he said that she still does hair that and he and he like spoke to these women who who he met when he went to Spokane to spend time with her. And they all like they all said that she was the best braider in Spokane. So that's her that's how she can make money. But that's kind of it. So um, so I you know, that's the thing about about these these public shaming cases is like, in the United States, if you cannot get a job, you can't get health care, you end up being homeless. It's such a some a public shaming like this can be a, like a literal life ending event, which makes me feel probably worse for these people than I should. But we just live in this world where the if you cannot get employment, you cannot live. This is why we need universal basic income so that we can actually increase and accelerate the internet pylons because we'll know people can still pay the bills. <laughs> exactly. Then it would be fine. And the other thing about this that I've been thinking about is, you know, a, a couple years ago, if you had asked me, 
is is race real? I would have said yes. You know, race is biological. Race is real. And I don't really believe that anymore after listening to people like Camille Foster and Thomas Chatterton Williams and Coleman Hughes and some other black thinkers some, you know, admittedly very heterodox black thinkers, I've sort of come to the conclusion that they're right, that race is a social construct. And that doesn't mean that it that it doesn't exist, that there aren't many repercussions. And it doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. Um, but if we if we think of race as a social construct, then is what she is what she did really that bad? Or is it just sort of this sort of performance art? <laughs> <laughs> this is like super, super devil's advocate. Okay, well, all right. So let me let me ask you: Do you think that race is a social construct? Uh, yeah, I think it's a racial construct mapped messily onto ethnicity, which is right. real, but often not as real as. Like in other words, people could look at you or me and be, and guess very accurately. Um, you know where our ancestors spent the most time before coming to the U.S. Like at least in terms on the level sure. of continent, that's obviously real. I don't think anyone sure. denies that. Um, sure. In terms of race, like black people. But wait, wait. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you there. Sure. Okay, but that is totally true with us. However, Thomas Chatterton Williams has talked about this a lot, and he wrote about this in his book. He's a black man. He's the descendant of slaves. He has children who, for all intents and purposes, look white. Yeah. They are blonde and blue eyed. Yeah. So you would look at so most people would look at them and say they are white. Right. So in that right in that sense, it's a it's a very it, it can change in like a generation, and also most people going back are like are mixes of stuff. So I, some some part of me that's like contrarian does sort of react negatively to like race is just a social construct because there's obviously. Ethnicity is real. You can tell someone's genetically an Ashkenazi Jew or that they're from, you know, date back to some African tribe or European. Like, there's a real element of it. But when you have intermarriage and interbreeding, for lack of a better word, and when you look at just how complicated genetics are and the fact that you can take five different black people or white people and they just have totally different backgrounds. Yeah, I, I think, I guess in other words, race being a fiction to me is closer to the truth than race being biological real, biologically real if I had to choose right. one or the other. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem all that different than gender to me. We can think of gender as a social construct, but it does, for the most part, map on to some sort of biological, some sort of biology. Do you think that's correct? Well, no, I, th I think, right, okay, gender versus sex. Right. Biological sex is much... Yes. realer and and um sort of objectively real beyond culture than anything involving race because it's just like 99 point whatever percent of us are male or female um people often want to well i mean we were talking about this pre-episode like there's huge weird culture war stuff going on by people who who claim like in the trans rights debate there was a, a philosophy paper i wrote about that got in trouble because this woman rebecca tuval said the arguments that could be used to accept transgender people's rights, which she said she was in favor of, could be used to accept um, transracial people's rights to identify how they want. And people people freaked out. And, but if you try to – I think this is the second time I've used this phrase, but it's a slippery fish. If you try to actually grasp onto what it is, the best I can come up with is transgender people often have gender dysphoria, which is like a well-established medical condition. We don't – we're not aware of something called uh, – racial dysphoria if racial dysphoria existed racial dysphoria yeah if i literally felt distress at not being seen wait you, you missed my joke rachel dysphoria rachel sorry <laughs> nice nice katie uh <laughs> thank you anytime you have to say you missed my joke um i mean so the, the, what this philosopher is trying to do is basically like this is a hypothetical argument, but if people – if racial dysphoria was real, I would say we have a moral obligation to let people dole us all. But you know, people there can understand that there's um competing rights at stake. For example, would would a – should Rachel dole us all be able to take resources earmarked for American descendants of slavery? People would say no. So it's like there's actually some – Well, she still would – that would – she still wouldn't be a, the descendant of slaves. Right, but if she could pass – Even if, if she, she could, was trans – Sure, but if she could pass as one right. and said she was – yeah, but you could say the same thing about right. like a Nigerian yeah, immigrant wouldn't be wouldn't be wouldn't be eligible for reparations. Yeah, I forget where we're going with this, but I mean it's interesting to think about how how our side of the political divide has just completely treat it treats gender and sex, which have a much stronger biological component, as like totally permeable and vague, and who the hell knows 
whereas it's increasingly treating race, which has almost no like hard biological dividing lines as like you cannot step outside your lane or you're committing a grievous harm. Right. Um, so inevitably, yesterday on Twitter, when this story emerged, um, people started making this comparison. You know, what is the difference between transgenderism and transracialism? And as as you mentioned, like, well, the difference, hypothetically, is that tr- transgenderism, transsexuality or whatever, is a result of a biological condition called gender dysphoria. That said, sometimes although that's not so, even yeah in right vogue. right yeah, sorry, right so right now a lot of people like if you argue that you have to have gender dysphoria to be trans there's a name for that they call it true scum isn't that what true scum is yeah you're true scum or, or trans medicalist right right and that and so that that's a people use that as a as a, a derogatory term right so um, so there are lots of people who argue that you don't have to have gender dysphoria to be trans yeah which you know uh, that's where you get to the point where. If you ask this question out loud, you'll you'll people will yell at you. I'm not sure there's a good answer why again, if we're taking gender dysphoria out of it, why one sort of identifying into an oppressed class is okay, but the other isn't. That's why I think a lot of the arguments for trans rights stem from the fact that like you're talking about people who are not gonna be able to live dignified, happy, satisfied lives unless they transition. I think that's important. And I don't that doesn't make me true scum in the sense that I, I'll respect anyone's I will respect anyone's pronouns and stuff, but I I think that's like the main thing differentiating the two cases. But you know, what ideology is totally consistent and coherent in everything it does? It's not like twenty twenty progressives are the first to not um you know, look at things with perfect logic and rigor. Right. And so there was this interesting quote when I was watching this, uh, the Dolezal documentary yesterday. They had clips of different interviews with um, mostly primarily black people who were real pissed at Rachel Dolezal. And they interviewed a trans woman and she said, her blackness is a performance. Our transness is an identity. Yeah, that doesn't – that. I, I, well, I don't, just don't think it, it – I don't sense. think it means anything. I'm not trying to be mean. But like what is it – what's the difference between – Rachel Dolezal surely – Unless you're claiming that as she's living her life as a black woman, she didn't feel black authentically, which I think she did, right? Yeah, I think she still she still maintains that she's black. She has never come out and said, I'm actually white. She has, She's maintained this. Yeah. She identifies as black. Despite the, despite the like terrible repercussions to her life, she still identifies as black. I mean, this all goes back to the fact that if you build any identity that is based on how other people see you and that requires – the validation of others it's just not it's not you're not gonna have a good time you know if my sense of myself as a writer could just be demolished by someone on twitter saying you're not a writer it's just not i understand obviously i'm i don't deal with gender dysphoria or any sort of uh neurotic racial issues but i just think the moral of the story here should be like your your identity should feel real to you and not like you shouldn't be able to let other people attack it. So maybe Rachel Dolezal is a hero here because she's just living her truth. I do think it's possible that in the coming years, her story will be reframed. I think it'll take a while, but I think at some point people might, um, might shift their thinking on this, 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 this whole issue. Although from the reaction yesterday, it seems like that will not happen anytime soon. I think in Donald Trump's fourth or fifth term, the <laughs> racial conversation is going to be pretty different. Yeah. So this is something I tweeted the other day, but I'm I'm curious to get your take on it. So I do not remember growing up and into my 20s, I do not remember people talking about identity the way that we do now. It just wasn't a term that was used. You know, in high school, it was like your clique or whatever that I guess that could be, um, you know, that could be mapped onto identity in some way. But that was much more superficial. That was based on, you know, what music you listen to, the friends you have, the sports you're into or, or whatever. But sometime in the past, I don't know, five, 10 years, identity, the word identity has become ubiquitous and has taken on these sort of um, sacrosanct proportions where you cannot question anyone's identity that you can't, you can't, you can, you know, that's, that's not allowed, but unless it's a case like this. Yeah, I mean, look, they, they, I think talk of quote-unquote identity politics goes back forever. And obviously, you know, in the 60s on the left, there were some similar debates to what's going on now about, like, whether people should make universalist claims or really whether, you know, black nationalism, black liberation. There was It was very complicated. But I think what's different now is just this idea that, like, of so many people, especially online, feeling like they need to show that they are a member of some identity group. And it's very important. And as 
we've talked about, it can partly explain what feels like a large number of what would otherwise be boring white people, gay or straight, because being gay does not really... It doesn't count anymore. Sorry, but in the U.S. it's not really... In progressive circles, it's not viewed as, as quote-unquote oppressed. Suddenly, people will adopt other identities, and sometimes it's about their gender. Sometimes it's about mental illness. A lot of this stuff is just sort of self-proclaimed, and it, it creates just a weird environment in which a lot of stuff is resolved, not by talking through or communicating or debating, but just by people's identities and people very obviously weaponize that because it's a terrible way to resolve anything. I don't know. It's one of the many things where like maybe if Biden wins, it calms down. Although who the hell knows at this point? Right. Um, speaking of, should we move on? Do you have anything else you want to say about this? No. I mean, I think we've established that Rachel Dole is all as a hero, which when we started this podcast, that was one of the main points. Right. Well, I am now a, a patron of hers. Thanks to my wife. That is very funny. Okay. So obviously, uh, our podcast is somewhat contrarian. I don't love that word, but I guess that's one of the niches we fill. That's the, it's the, like, the ultimate sign of a contrarian is when someone calls you a contrarian and you're like, I'm not a fucking contrarian. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> um, it, it seems like, okay, the little bit of, I want to do a more formal survey. It's on my ever lengthening list. The one time someone in our subreddit did a survey, it's not a scientific sample. It was basically what I expected, where most people were leftist or progressive, then some uh, centrist, and then the smallest group was conservative. So part of the reason we don't spend a lot of time on this podcast railing about Trump, and you, Kate, you can tell me if this applies to both of us. I think it I think it does. It's like you could sort of do that forever, right? Like there is an endless amount of things to say about how crazy and bad Trump is, and I think other people – do that better than us and i just i i i can't do that every week i would i would have to like be institutionalized so right everybody do, everybody's doing it there and yes as you said there are people who are doing it better than us so i do not think our value is being you know two more voices into the into the into the choir there yeah that said i i've seen what feels like a little bit of an uptick in my i guess in my social feeds for what that's worth of people openly saying things like the most common one is they like don't see a difference between biden and trump they're not going to vote they're so put off by the fact that it wasn't um bernie they're not going to vote um and then i also got an email from a reader i'm not going to name her she's someone i've corresponded with a little bit with the subject line talk me out of voting for trump um so i think we should just maybe go through this email because like these are points that i've seen other people making and it, it might be useful just to in my view knock them down once because i I, I get frustrated when otherwise smart people pretend there's no difference between Biden and Trump. Neither of us is particularly enthused by Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. There's a massive difference between the two of them. Um, my view on all of this is partly colored, A, by ideological preferences for Democratic Party rule on everything. B, I just have like a visceral deep-seated contempt for Trump because his entire biography is just – Horror. I mean, has this guy ever done anything good that not only has he not done anything good, doesn't it feel like everything he's ever done has just been bad in one way or another? Uh, he's, it's just fraud. It's one fraud on top of another. And he somehow gets away with it. And he is like part of my reaction to Trump is a very visceral dislike of him as a, as a human being, um, which is not necessarily fair. I think it's just it, – it's taste, right? Um, and I, and I yeah. do think that a lot of people on our side, if, if you can – you know, if we can pretend for a moment that there are two sides. But I think a lot of people, specifically people in, um, you know, sort of, you know, educated upper middle class – not that we're upper middle class yet, maybe next week um, – in this sort of realm – um, do have this visceral dislike of the guy because he's he has no class, right? Because he, which is sort of a classist thing to say, but he's just an icky fucking dude. That's definitely part of it. But if he had if he had right. no class and hadn't also run casinos into the ground and been credibly accused totally. of sexual, you know, and come from a family that kept black people out of out of their buildings, it's yes. like a mix, right? Oh I, no, it's it's absolutely a mix. But you know, combined together, like put them all put them all together, and what you get is this horrible fucking orange pack. I do think that Trump derangement syndrome is real. Yeah. Um, for instance, I got a, a text the other day from my sister who listened to our last podcast um, a, a, against my express wishes. 
And um, and we both said in the podcast that we thought that George Bush was a worse president than Trump, and we would rather have Trump than Bush. No, you mean we'd rather? Oh yeah, we'd rather have Trump than Bush. Sorry, we'd rather have we'd rather have Trump than Bush, right? And um, and so this you know so this became a, a discussion with my family, and I think my entire family was really appalled that we would see this. But the reality is that I think. Bush was a worse president, as we discussed, because he got more shit done, right? Um, we went to war with two different countries that we are still engaged in this conflict because of George Bush and his handlers. I think he was as dumb as Trump, but he also surrounded himself with evil but capable people. And that, to me, is a bigger danger. However, as a person, I hate Trump more. And I'm not sure if that's just his sort of like his that it's probably more just his fucking persona, yeah. which is so terrible. Um, but when it comes down to like who who will actually have a bigger, a, a, a more terrible impact on the world? You know, I think it's I think ultimately it's George Bush. My sister argued that, you know, I said, well, you know. George Bush killed half a million Iraqis. And my sister said, well, Trump killed, you know, almost a quarter of a million Americans with COVID. I don't think that's quite fair. Nah. It's really, yeah. yeah. I don't think that's Um, fair. But I do think that that she and my family and a lot of people like us have such a visceral response to Trump that is based more in him as a person than looking at sort of the big picture over the past four years. Yes. And, and, among the set of like sort of hipster leftists who some of whom are not even going to vote for Biden, one of the fair points they make is that to a lot of like moderate liberals, all the shit is aesthetic. Like they're, they hate yes. Trump more than Bush because Trump gets up there and says, I'm going to keep Muslims out of the country. Okay. That was horrific. I was like at JFK when we, pro- when there were protests going on because I was so outraged by, but like George W. Bush got up and said, we are not at war with Islam. Okay, how many how many hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis is that worth? Or or I mean, right. there's this, yeah. So and just to be clear, the, I, the reason I don't think the COVID comparison is is fair is because you're comparing Trump and Bush. Would the Bush administration, the way it handles Katrina, have done a great job with with COVID? I just um, there are other countries clearly have done a much better job at containing COVID. However, there are lots of local angles with this, right? I mean, you could in some places it comes down to the governor's response or to the local response to COVID, which is not you can't unilaterally put that on Trump. No. Um, Okay, so let's let's just go. Okay, so this is a listener of ours who is um, genuinely thinking of voting for Trump. Let's just let's go through. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read the important bits. Okay, the Democratic response to the Jacob Blake shooting tells me they don't give a rat's ass about the truth of the rioting. Blake was shot after he showed up at the home of a woman he had previously assaulted. He had open felony war- warrants for sexual assault and domestic abuse. Shot while trying to leave with three children. She basically says, like, she thinks the shooting's justified because he was trying to leave with his kids. I, you know, I still think there has to be a better way to handle a situation like that. I obviously think the reporting that leaves out the fact that there was a scuffle, that he was there, you know, his girlfriend called the cops on him. I, I just think there has to be a better way. I have heard from sort of more law enforcement sympathetic people who are like okay well what should they do i don't know what the answer is i just know that that's very disturbing um so i mean look if the question is did some people shave off the the rough edges of that incident to make it seem a little bit simpler than it is i think that's true i don't i don't really blame biden well i i I wouldn't say it's a little simpler i'd say it changed the narrative entirely i mean the first and this is not the this is not like the democratic establishment doing this this was like people on twitter when the first video emerged the narrative as we talked about last time the narrative that came out was he was there to break up a fight it turns out that probably isn't true but i don't think we can pin that on Joe Biden or the Democratic establishment. That's really a byproduct of of culture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just sort of online craziness. And I think part of what's going on is that um, people are pinning on Biden stuff that sort of the online left is doing. Yes. Biden is not a creature of the online left by any means. I get why people are so paranoid about this sort of creeping authoritarianism on the left and and really disturbed by the misinformation that gets passed around 
the left, specifically the, the hyper online left that, that fits a convenient narrative that is often not true. I get that. I find it very disturbing. But once again, this is a culture issue. This is not a government issue. And the gov- like, all right, the RNC talking about cancel culture. Well, first of all, I think it was like fucking ridiculous, but also maybe genius that instead of talking about the global pandemic and the employment crisis and the coming homelessness crisis and everything that is going wrong with the world right now, the RNC talked about cancel culture. And don't get me wrong. I fucking love to talk about cancel culture. I love to bitch about it more than the next guy for sure. But that is not something that the federal government should be is or can be or should be involved in. It's just not. It's a cultural issue. And my fear is that if Donald Trump is reelected, that cultural issue is going to get worse, right? So the left, we can just like, let's just generalize here. Let's say the online left will double the fuck down. The woke activists will double the fuck down if Donald Trump is reelected. So I don't think that him, that voting for him is actually going to make any, it's not going to make cancel culture any better. It's not going to make the left any more rational. It's going to make both things worse. Right. And and I think what people are losing sight of is shit feels crazy now, but this is because this stuff has boiled up for like almost four years. Um, well, I guess he was inaugurated about three and a half years ago, but Donald Trump really did just say, I'm going to ban Muslims from entering the country. He really did like, you know, yeah. do crazy shit about the Central Park Five. He's made all sorts of horrific inflammatory remarks. And if he really did lose children at the separate children. And this is not to say that Obama was great on immigration. He was absolutely not. But Donald Trump really did separate parents and children at the border and fucking lose the children. Thousands of them. Yeah. That really happens. Yeah. And and so between what he said and what he's did, I, it doesn't surprise me that there has been a backlash on the left because it's a backlash to it, – it's crazy watching Trump, t- even just the tweets, even setting aside the policy. I, I don't – like if you were Muslim, for example, and you're just as American as the rest of us and you see this guy saying this horrific shit, I mean – you can't expect the average American to respond in a perfectly rational, well, we just have a crazy president now. I mean, it's, it's really disturbing stuff. And, uh, yeah, look, I, I, we, this show is partly about sort of woke silliness, but there's a reason it's getting worse. And it's not just, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. It happened because of this guy. Well, I don't think it happened entirely because of this guy, but I do think that the, two are connected. I think wokeness was on the rise before Trump. I think it was on the rise during Obama. You could maybe even say it goes back to the 90s. Um, but there, a lot of this is certainly in response to Donald Trump and this idea that many people on the left had, including me at the very beginning of his term, that he was really going to usher fascism and authoritarian in, into the United States. I don't think he's actually done that. I, like maybe maybe he'd like to, but I don't think, you know, the checks, like yeah, the checks and balances have actually in some degree worked um he has he's had a lot of fucking bad executive orders um that will be probably overturned by you know whoever is whoever is uh it's president next um but you know i think the response to the trump the trump presidency was incredibly emotional and of course it was like did you cry after he after he was elected yeah oh yeah me too spent the whole fucking like next like week just like crying worried just i went to marches it was just incredibly emotional the good news is it turns out that the dude is so chaotic uh and so incompetent that fewer of the things that he promised to do have actually come true there is no border wall thank god they're trying to build one but there's still as of yet there is no fucking border wall well i'd say with the exception of like the the migrant stuff which i don't want to downplay because that's horrific Unlike if if you could branch out from the moment he was inaugurated into all the possible timelines, we're actually not in one of the worst Trump timelines. This could have been much worse, I think. Right. And the federal judges is certainly, um, you know, they have stacked the federal courts with conservative judges. That would have happened under under any Any Republican. Yeah. Any any that was really that was Mitch McConnell, who actually is competent, unfortunately. Um, And. That's what actually I think that would be like the number one thing that that people could do right now is like move to fucking Kentucky and vote that man out of office would probably have a bigger impact than getting than getting rid of Trump. Um, but yeah, it, he is too chaotic to actually get any of his ridiculous promises done. Okay, so the listener also writes Harris made comments that came close to encouraging the rioting to continue. So 
it is still the case that the vast majority, there have been so much protest since George Floyd was killed. It is still the case, despite the horrible stuff that we're not going to downplay on the show, whether it's Portland or Seattle or Kenosha, it is still the case that it has mostly been peaceful. And that I think in many of these cities, there's a clear delineation between the protesters during the day who are peaceful and then these fucking assholes who come out at night because they want to fight a cop or burn down a building. So I just don't think it's fair to say, again, I have my beefs with Harris. I don't, she, Harris and Biden do not want looting and rioting. They have spoken out against it as forcefully as they could and they've done it in such a sort of, especially Biden has done it in such a violence on both sides is bad way, which I think is the right way to do it, that he could almost be accused of sort of both sides in it. Whereas Trump doesn't seem capable of, of pointing out that there is violence on the right. Like for Trump, it's just sort of Antifa. It's like people, there's a, a refusal. I think a lot of people want it to be the case that what's going on right now is just one side or the other. When clearly some of the worst people in the country are locked in these escalating patterns that are getting worse and we have multiple people dead now and i just you know i i i think our listener is smart but i don't know what it is she's seeing that i'm not with regard i mean have you seen anything from biden or harris that could be construed as supporting the rioting or the looting i didn't see if she if harris said something supporting the rioting looting i didn't see it um that said i understand why people get frustrated or annoyed when they hear people like us or read on CNN that they have been mostly peaceful protests. I hear this every fucking day on NPR. They introduce everything by saying mostly peaceful protests. The reality is they have been mostly peaceful protests. The problem is, as you mentioned, these mostly peaceful protests are interspersed by horrible property crimes and now murders. This is terrible. Obviously, that has a much bigger impact socially um, and on the consciousness than hundreds of thousands or millions of people marching in the street, you know, holding up their banners and nothing happens. The media is going to cover the violent protests. That's just what's going to happen. But I think it's also really important to remember that the people doing this, let's just say for a moment that it's Antifa. A lot of people on the left might argue that Antifa doesn't exist. I don't think that's true. Antifa does exist. I don't think it's a fucking organization with a hierarchy. I don't think there are memberships, but it's a, it's a, it's an opt-in situation. You put on the outfit and you go and you're a part of Antifa or whatever. That said, Antifa are not Democrats. The, the point of anarchism, of anti-fascism as well, is not to, to prop up the democratic establishment. They want to burn the entire system down. And I think we talked about this on the podcast last week. It is a mistake to conflate the two because what Antifa wants is not Joe Biden in office. They want nobody in office. They want different systems of governing that are based on, you know, small, local, anarchic systems of governing. This philosophy exists. It is not new. It is old. But it is not the democratic establishment. It is not. Um, and I think Biden and Harris and democratic activists need to do everything they can to to make that clear to the people. And I don't think they've done a all of them have done a particularly good job. But or Black Lives Matter also probably needs to do a, a you know a better job of distancing themselves from the from the rioting and looting at least in a way that resonates with people. But the important thing to remember is the people going out and burning down buildings are not Democrats. This woman named Vicky Osterweil has caught some much deserved flack because she published this horrible looking book called I think it's called In Defense of Looting or something like that. And both NPR and the Nation ran softball interviews with her. Isaac Chodner just like eviscerated her as he, you know, just don't call back if Isaac Chodner calls you. Yeah, seriously. In one of these interviews, she part of her um, argument for looting, which is it's just disgraceful because she doesn't even bother thinking through the most obvious counter arguments to this. But she literally says, like, you know, change at the ballot box has failed. She's in favor of looting and rioting because change at the ballot box has failed. This is the sort of person. In addition to the various sociopaths who are just drawn to violent scenes, this is the type of quote unquote intellectual who supports looting and rioting. This is not someone who wants Biden. They are, they either think the country is already in such disrepair they need to be violent or they're accelerationists who want shit to fall apart. These are the sorts of people drawn to these scenes. They're not, they're not Biden supporters. She says in the interview with Chotner that she, that, that, that Sanders and Warren weren't the, weren't the answer either. She does not want the Democratic establishment, even if that is headed by Bernie Sanders, to be in office. She is not a Democrat. She is something on the outside entirely. And people are conflating the two. And it benefits the GOP if people think 
think that anarchists are Democrats. They are not Democrats. They are anarchists. Democrats are fucking nerds. Like right. the people, this is the party that like helped investigate violent video games and helped invade <laughs> Iraq. Like that's what we're trying to fucking pull them away from. Just they're, they're just these like glasses. No offense to people wearing glasses. These glasses wearing like, ah, doom is violent. Like the, I understand the party's been pulled to the left, which I think is good. It is in no way a radical party. And I just think conservatives have been good at, at painting them that way. But I can't honestly fault Biden. I think he said the right things. And I think he's like uh, barely alive at this point. See, that, that, however, I think is the problem is that people – and the letter maybe gets into this a little bit more. I didn't, I haven't actually read it yet. Um, but I think that's the problem is that people are, are afraid that – some, they're going to prop Biden up in the corner and usher in the sort of, you know, critical theory, woke, woke intersectionality into the federal government. I'm concerned about that as well. I am totally concerned about that. However, once again, a lot of this is a response to Donald Trump. And so Trump being in office is not going to make this stuff disappear. It is just going to make it louder and stronger. And the backlash will be even fucking bigger than it was last time. It's also clear from everything Biden's saying that he's viewing himself like he's trying to portray himself as a moderate centrist calming influence. And if he wins, he's not going to owe his election to like radical, you know, Marxist identitarian. T- yeah, he's again like I keep bringing these folks up, but they it is true that he won in large part because of like black voters in South Carolina. These are not radical people. I'm, of course, overgeneralizing. I don't like to overgeneralize by race, but all the data shows us that white Democrats are more radical than black Democrats. Biden has won with the the overwhelmingly with sort of the moderate base of the party. So he doesn't it's not like he owes favors to like, you know, Ibram Kendi or whoever you're, you're worried about. I am sure that that Joe Biden has not read Ibram Kendi or Robin D'Angelo, which much to the chagrin of uh, of some of the probably Elizabeth Warren stands out there. Um, but he is not woke. He is asleep. He is sleepy Joe Biden. <laughs> and I and that's not what Donald Trump is talking about when he calls him that. But the man is not woke. You can't be woke when you're asleep. <laughs> OK, let me just read another quick paragraph. We're almost, we're almost done, but I think we're, we've made the key points. There is also the long-lasting uncertainty. I'd kind of like to start a business one day. Under Democratic leadership in places like Wisconsin, business owners have to hope that 17-year-olds show up, get a gun, and defend their own businesses, or else frantically read their insurance policies and pray riots are covered. I'll never take that kind of risk. I shouldn't have to. The realm of business ownership shouldn't be limited to people willing to own a gun and face a mob with it. Okay, but just frankly, look— Things have been horrible this summer in Seattle uh, and to lesser extents. Like Kenosha, it was one night things were really bad, but it was horrible. They burned down a block. It was horrible. And things are have also been bad in a small part of Portland. A, his, this isn't even close to like 1968 where there was a whole summer of much worse than this. I'm not trying to like what about it, but but the fact is that – I mean it's not even after the, after the King riots, 60 people were killed. Yeah, man. It's – the idea that like – the so the average – this is me being a bleeding heart type. The average business owner in 2020 has so much more to fear from the economic collapse and coronavirus and accessing health care and all the stuff where I think Trump is obviously worse than Biden than a riot. Like what, what percentage of businesses nationwide have been affected by rioting versus coronavirus? I mean, this is what happens when like our attention gets pulled all the way in the direction of like, that flaming car wreck over there, which is worth talking about because it's, you know, a car, a flaming car wreck. But, you know, this is we're in the midst of a horrific economic crisis that has I forget what the percentage is, but a terrifying percentage of New York City businesses are just shutting down for good. Like I walk around and you can even where I live in one of the wealthier parts of the country, New York, a major world center of wealth. Everything is shutting down. It is not because of rioting. It's because we're like, we're fucked economically. And I have no faith in Trump's ability to unfuck us. With Biden, I have some faith that there were at least the people awake at the switch capable of partially unfucking us. With Trump, we're just, I just think we're going to get more fucked. I'm not going to argue that Democrats are better for small business owners than Republicans are, uh, because I'm, I'm just not sure that that's true. That said, as you mentioned, we are in the midst of a global fucking pandemic. And I do think we are more likely to solve the problems of the pandemic under a Biden presidency than a Trump presidency, whether that's vaccines or something else. I guess it would have to be a vaccine. I do not believe that the Trump government, which has been, you know, what I mean, one of the worst things that he has done is just 
let the let the federal government just decimate the federal government by just attrition, right? By not filling positions, by yeah. not funding organizations. I mean, the whole the whole coronavirus response from his statements on down has been horrifically embarrassing. I mean, this is this is like the level where I'm not sure even George W. Bush would have fucked this up this badly. It's just. It's been awful all the way down. They've done nothing right at any level. Right. We need things like the CDC and the FDA to be funded and to be staffed. And Donald Trump has not done these things. He hasn't done these things. Right. Uh, and so I think you're right. I do not I do not think that, um, you know, the, the situation for small business owners is going to be better under Trump than it, than it would be under Biden. I can see why the letter writer would have these concerns. But... You know, don't move to Seattle if you're if like if you're if you're what your like real fear is is like looting and rioting in places like Portland and Seattle. Don't move to Seattle and don't move to like the four block radius where this is actually happening because it, this is happening in small parts of the cities, right? It is not. I mean, as like as annoying as it is to see blue check marks on Twitter tweeting from their from like their Brent spot on the Upper West Side or the Upper East Side or whatever that you know that everything is good in New York. That shit's yeah. annoying. It is, but. The reality is like the unrest is really limited to small, small areas in these cities. That does not make it any better for the businesses who are in these small areas at all. Um, Nellie Bowles at the New York Times did a, came to Seattle and did a great piece on a, a coffee shop that I used to go to almost every day when I when I worked at The Stranger. Um, a, 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 there's a, a lawsuit against the against the city for how they handled you know the Chaz occupation, the Chaz Chop occupation. Um, small business owners. Really did get fucked, Completely. but Joe Biden and Donald Trump—that's not down on them. That's really on 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 uh, on local governments. I think I, I skipped this one bit that I just want to address too. I care about a lot of issues, but literally none of them matter if I have to face violence on the streets. Interpersonal violence leaves scars. It does incredibly long-lasting damage. The individual people who are going to end up with PTSD or just long-lasting trauma is massive. Again, I, I just think it's with respect myopic to say. Trump represents peace and Biden represents violence. Again, it's been a terrible summer. But if, if you're traumatized by violence, I mean, everything from from gun policy to the effects of an economic breakdown, which always lead to violence, to the fact that Trump himself has perpetrated numerous acts of interpersonal violence. I just um, I don't know. I mean, I just I just disagree with this. I, I do not. I'm not going to lecture anyone who, who's like considering this. I just – and again, look, so much of this is just my own ideology, my own aversion to Republican rule. But I just think on top of that, Trump has had every opportunity to show that he's capable of, of doing anything in a competent way and he hasn't. And even just having competent people appointed to the CDC or any other agency, that's a quiet part of government that we usually ignore completely. But that there's a huge difference between the two on that. Right. You know – I think that Trump has done a couple of things right, or the Trump administration has done a very small number of things right. The First Step Act was good. Of course, it was bipartisan. This was not something that Donald Trump did. And he was, of course, uh, influenced by uh, by you know Kim Kardashian, um, who pressured him. That's the criminal justice right. reform thing. Right. right. Um, I agree with uh, with Betsy DeVos's um, position on on Title IX. So there's a couple things. I, I don't think I suffer from from complete Trump derangement syndrome. I think I'm able to to look at his record and say not 100 percent of it has been terrible. Um, unlike maybe some some other people I know. That said, most of it's been pretty fucking bad. And it's just the the amount of like of stress, the amount of, uh, yeah. of just like daily anxiety of living under this man when you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know what he's going to do at no. any given time. Luckily, most of it never fucking comes true because the guy's just like he'll just like he'll see something shiny and he'll just his attention will divert or he'll. Somebody will say something on the TV and then he's preoccupied for the next 10 hours or whatever. Um, but if we want things to get back to normal, and not that normal was great, but normal was better than what we have now. Um, that said, I do not believe that we are capable of arguing people out of voting for Donald Trump because I don't think that voting is rational or that that the the candidates we choose is always rational. I think oftentimes it's a visceral response. It's stylistic. Some people think that Trump is funny and so they're willing to vote for him just because they think he's funny or because it's a fuck you vote. I did a, a series with a, a Trump voter, a, an Obama voter who switched to Trump. And, and when I worked at The Stranger, I would interview him every couple of months just to sort of check in over the course of the election of how she was, of how he was feeling. And 
he told me this isn't rational. I, you know, I, I liked Obama better. I thought, he, you know, I disagree with Trump policies. But for him, it was the Trump vote was a fuck you vote. It was a fuck you to the establishment. It was a fuck you to snobby liberals. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way. But if we try to be rational about it, if we, you know, tamp down the emotions and try to look at his record and Joe Biden's record and and try to be a realistic about what comes next, I think the choice is clear. Um, I don't. I don't hate Trump supporters by any means. They have their reasons. But to me, I, I think the choice is just really obvious. I, I just for anyone thinking of like a fuck you vote, I would really stop to think, you know, as much as you hate snooty liberals and, and we can be snooty, like, do you really think Donald Trump has ever shown any interest in helping anyone who is in himself and that he really cares about the stuff that these sorts of people who you know, are bothered by snooty liberals care about? Do you think Donald Trump really wants to bring jobs back to the heartland? Has he shown any sign of that? Does he want more widespread prosperity for Americans who are struggling? Um, yeah, I don't want to start sounding like a campaign ad. There's there's something. It's boring. I mean, it's important, but it's also boring. But um, I agree with you. We probably can't convince anyone of anything. I also think we're I think probably 10% of our audience is even thinking of voting for Trump. I just thought it was important to get this out there because I'm I'm nervous about the election both the question of who's going to win and I, I will talk more about this. I think it, the country could descend into utter chaos in a million directions, but um, I just think there's no comparison between the two. I, I don't, I'm, I just, I just, I want Trump out so badly. I just want something like normalcy for a little while. Have you seen in, in New York, do you have big trucks driving around with Trump flags on them? No, I haven't seen any. I stumbled upon one big pro Trump rally actually next to city hall when I was, I was meeting some really? friends on, um, yeah. On uh, one of the Chelsea Piers, um, this weird like police guy—I uh, forget his name. It was he was such a stereotypical Italian American conservative. <laughs> I felt like he was committing a hate crime just by existing. I'll try to post the video. <laughs> it's too big. I took video. I'll post it in the show notes. Um, yeah, we don't have a lot of pro-Trump provocateurs. You guys, you guys must have those in the Pacific Northwest because you have a lot of like rural conservatives, right? Right. It's it's actually strange. I until the last couple of months, I've never seen uh, I saw Trump signs every once in a while in people's yards um, where I live in. I live outside Seattle. Um, so the it, my my town still went for Clinton last time, uh, but not at not by like 90 percent as it as it did in Seattle. Um, but I have seen man, it's almost almost every time I like leave my house and like I'm out in the town, I'll see a giant fucking tr- it's always a truck giant truck with Trump flags. Um, it's weird. It's weird. It's uh, it's something I, you know, sort of didn't expect to see, you know, you see this stuff in the south where I'm from all the time. And I didn't really expect to see it out here because this is still, you know, Washington is still one of the bluest states. But um, the base is the base is ramped up. That is for sure. And they are not afraid to show it. Yeah. I think hopefully they'll be outnumbered by people who are very enthusiastic about voting against Trump, even if they're not enthusiastic about voting for Biden. But he has he has this unshakable base, which I don't understand. But uh, yeah, is that um, is that it? <laughs> Just thinking about this is very depressing. November's this whole fucking year sucks, but November's gonna be horrible. That see, that's why I think Trump's gonna win is because it's twenty twenty. Yeah, what nothing good, good happens in twenty twenty, other than the birth of Blotter reported. Uh, yes, other than that, that is uh, that the best thing that has happened this year. Okay, you can get in touch. You can tell us why we're wrong at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We are back. Our war of 4.7 versus 4.6. 4.7 is winning. Thank Christ. Uh, we'll see if we can keep that up. But give us 5.0 to nudge that upward. Subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported. Katie, anything else? Yes, we have a Patreon. We have a membership program that I would encourage all of you to join. Uh, Jesse has an interesting um, interview up today with, what's his name? Justin? Tozy. Tozy. Um, about moral grandstanding, uh, which there's some overlap here with the conversation that we had today. So um, please uh, check that out. Patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Yeah, we also talked about sort of the social justice stuff going on in philosophy. I was really happy with the interview, so I hope you guys will check it out. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, I'm actually Chad Chadwick III, a handsome surfer boy from California. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you identify as the president, you should act like one. <laughs>